Welcome to tape number 11 of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on with our reading of the Apocalypse, chapter 20, verse 4. These lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years, that is, in their successive generations, for otherwise they would overlive the age of Methuselah. Souls are here evidently persons and not souls as distinct from bodies as some needlessly argue against millenarians, for foreheads and hands are attributed to them, but foreheads cannot be literally ascribed to those who have been beheaded. Their living is to be understood of their succeeding to the same scriptural position occupied by their predecessors, as well as succeeding them in the order of natural generation. The Holy Spirit says, Levi, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. Hebrews 8, verses 9 and 10. Elijah reappeared in the person of John the Baptist. Matthew 11, verse 14. Jezebel and Balaam were recognized in their wicked successors, chapter 2, verse 14 and 20. But this is the very structure of the apocalypse, being composed of hieroglyphics, that the free agency of the wicked might be left untrammeled, and the diligence of God's people might be testing and searching the scriptures. Verse 5, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead supposes two classes of the dead. These are the witnesses who died a violent and cruel death and the wicked who died a natural death. There were no bands in their death. As there are two kinds of death, so are there two kinds of resurrection, a first and a second of each. Those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus lived in their successors, sat on thrones, reigned with Christ a thousand years. Of course, those who were slain by Christ and his army at the battle of Armageddon and whose flesh was given to the fowls of heaven lived not again in their successors until the thousand years were finished. Consequently, this is the first resurrection with which the true disciples of Christ shall be honored. They must, however, die as all others and await the second resurrection, but on them the second death shall have no power. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, 
but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Blessed and holy and blessed because holy, for sin is the procuring cause of misery. This is a summary description of the millennial period, the dragon being bound by the almighty power of Christ and not permitted to deceive the nations. War shall cease until the end, unto the ends of all the earth, the population of the globe must be rapidly and greatly multiplied beyond all precedent. Psalm 46, verse 9, 72, 11, and 16. The life of man will be prolonged, Isaiah 65, verses 20 to 25. Holiness, righteousness, and praise shall spring forth before all the nations, Isaiah 61, verse 11. That condition of our globe, which divines call the millennium a state of holiness and happiness, second only to the enjoyment of heaven felicity, is as clearly and frequently promised to God's people as the promise of the Messiah was under the former economy. But as many were in expectation that the kingdom of God should immediately appear, who then entertained unwarrantable and carnal conceptions of the Messiah's person and reign, just such groundless and gross expectations and aspirations are cherished now. A literal resurrection of all the righteous who shall have died before the millennium is supposed to take place at the personal appearance of Christ, and this too before the general judgment. By personal they mean corporal, for the Lord Christ promised his gracious personal presence with his people all days when he was about to disappear from their bodily vision. Matthew 28, verse 20. To them that look for him shall he appear the second time, not a third, without sin unto salvation. Hebrews 9.28 and Revelation 1.7 Besides, it is for a moment supposable that saints... Excuse me. Besides, is it for a moment supposable that saints who have passed into glory are to be brought upon earth to conflict once more with enemies when Gog and Magog shall surround the camp of the saints? Is such is a specimen of questions suggested by the millenarian system, which have failed of either scriptural or rational solution by all the learning and ingenuity of its fanciful advocates. The whole series of the Apocalypse proves that the two witnesses live in prophecy throughout the 1260 years of Antichrist reign. Their lives and their testimony end together, chapter 11, verse 7. But the beast that slays them is himself with his ally, the false prophet, at the close of the contest, cast alive into the lake of fire. Chapter 19, verse 20. After three and a half prophetical days, the witnesses are raised and ascend up to heaven. Chapter 11, verse 12. And this is the identical fact which is more fully presented here in the 20th chapter. The resurrection of the witnesses in the 11th chapter is a spiritual and mystical resurrection in the persons of their successors. The heaven to which they were exalted is a mystical heaven, and just so of those beheaded and advanced after their resurrection to positions of civil and ecclesiastical power, as in this 20th chapter. Thus exalted and ruling in the fear of God, they become a terror to evil doers and a praise to them that do well. Romans 13, verse 3. Then shall be realized the glorious predictions of Isaiah and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 9, and Psalm 72, verse 1. 
verses 7 to 9. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And when they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. The Lord Christ will remove the restraint which has repressed the chief enemy during the thousand years, that the faithful and true witness may give the final testimony to the moral universe that neither the philosophy of proud man nor the law of Moses, no, nor the ordinances of the gospel will ever change the nature of a sinner, that neither judgments nor mercies have any efficacy to subdue the stubborn will or renew the desperately wicked heart of man and that it is a righteous thing with God to render tribulation to them that trouble his saints and insult his majesty. Thus released for a little season, the prime enemy goes about as before to deceive the nations. He is successful. The rest of the dead who live not again during the thousand years at once reappear in the persons of their genuine successors. They are the children of them that killed the witnesses. The seed of the serpent aiming a last fatal stroke at the seed of the woman. They are called Gog and Magog, and because of the identity of names, many have supposed them to be the same as those enemies of the people of God described by Ezekiel. Chapters 38 and chapters 39. Chapter 38 and 39. This view, however, is without sanction in the scriptures. The characters are mystical according to the uniform structure of the apocalypse. Ezekiel's Gog and Magog come from the north quarters, those of John from the four quarters or corners of the earth. It is also probable, if not absolutely certain, that the enemies predicted by Ezekiel are to appear before, while those of John are to arise after the millennium. The overthrow of Gog and Magog foretold by Ezekiel is evidently connected with the conversion of the Jews, chapter 39 verses 22 and 29 but that event must precede the millennial period Romans 11:26. Magog is reckoned with Meshach and Tubal among the sons of Japheth Genesis 10 verse 2 and those nations called in history Scythians and Tartars in the north quarters of Europe and Asia as well as the isles of the Gentiles are supposed to be their descendants by the three unclean spirits Chapter 16, verse 13, a confederacy was affected under the sixth vial to the battle of Armageddon. And the same is again presented in chapter 19, verse 20, as the final attempt against the saints previously to the millennium, when two of the prime instigators, the beast and the false prophet, are cast into the lake of fire. Thus, we may suppose eastern and western Antichrist finally destroyed. Ezekiel's Gog and Magog being slain in the battle of Armageddon, how or where shall we find those of John? They are to be found precisely on the same principle on which we find the witnesses of Christ in this chapter. Satan is loosed a little season, little as compared with the thousand years of Messiah's reign, or rather as compared with the 1260 years of the dragon's successful enterprises against the saints through the beast and the false prophet as agents. These being now cast into the lake of fire, Satan is forever deprived of their agency. 
during the millennial period, people will be born in sin as at other times. And at the close of that happy period, Almighty God will display His sovereignty by withholding His grace that a last demonstration may be given to all the world of the necessity and efficacy of that grace in changing the heart of a sinner. Without the intervention of the beast or the false prophet, Satan will prevail by more direct temptations to gather together to battle a multitude of the same spirit as Ezekiel's Gog and Magog displayed against the saints before the millennium. These are the rest of the dead that live not again till the one thousand years were finished. As the deadly wound of the civil beast was healed and he received a new life to the astonishment of spectators, chapter 13, verse 3, as the witnesses received the spirit of life from God to the dismay of their enemies, chapters 11, 11, and chapter 20, verse 4, so Gog and Magog reappear in the persons and bloody cruelties of their genuine successors. And in language similar to that in the context, we may warrantably say, this is the second resurrection. For when it is declared that the rest of the dead live not again, it is manifest that two classes of dead are intended. All are said to be dead, the witnesses slain by the beast, their enemies slain by the Lord. The witnesses rise, and this is the first resurrection. A first implies a second of the same kind. Well, the rest live not again till the thousand years were finished. What then? Why, simply this, that the other remaining class of the dead lived again, and this appears to be the obvious scope and meaning of these terms, so vexing to many critics. By deception, Satan prevails to assemble the nations in vast multitudes as the sand of the sea, a proverbial form of expression applied to Abraham's seed. Genesis 22, verse 17. They went up on the breadth of the earth. Coming from the four quarters of the earth, they compassed the camp of the saints. This allusion here is twofold, to Israel in the wilderness in the time of Moses and to the holy city, Jerusalem, in the days of David. Psalm 118, verses 10 to 12. For often did the enemy with joint heart attempt to cut off the name of Israel. Psalm 88, verse 4 through 8. Never was Pharaoh or Sennacherib more confident of a sure and easy victory over the saints. Exodus 15:9 and Isaiah 36, verse 20. As in the days of Noah, most of the generation of the righteous had been taken home to glory before the ungodly were destroyed by the deluge. So we may suppose the camp of the saints to be but a little flock when assailed for the last time, while they are, a, are in a militant state. The issue in this case, however, will be more decisive and glorious than any other battle with the powers of darkness. We may adopt and apply the words of the prophet to God's people in the time of Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Second Chronicles 20, verse 15 and 17. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured this great multitude. This most dreadful of all elements in the material universe is that which is commonly employed to represent the wrath of God. By it, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Korah and his rebellious company, the captains in their fifties, fire proceeded out of the mouth of the two witnesses and devoured their enemies. 
Gog and Magog are consumed by this element. The heavens and the earth, which are now, are reserved unto fire. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel. Most probably these very enemies and all such are to be consigned to the fire that never shall be quenched. Awful thought, tremendous destiny. Who would not fear thee, O Lord, who art a consuming fire to all thy impenitent enemies? Verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. The first rebel against the righteous authority of the Lord and his anointed, and the ceaseless instigator of all rebellions of individual and social man, is the last to be consigned to adequate punishment. When the Lord first called sinners to account, the same order is noticeable. First Adam, then Eve, the la- and last the serpent. The beast and the false prophet are already in the lake of fire, chapter 19, verse 20. And now Satan, who is here called the devil, is dismissed after them, that they may all be tormented forever and ever. Words, as already noticed, which are the strongest in the Greek language, to convey to the human mind the idea of endless duration. Verses 11 to 15. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Nothing now remains to bring to the close the moral administration of Messiah, but the raising of the dead and pronouncing final sentence on all the subjects of his government. There is no intimation that any events shall intervene between this casting of the devil into the burning lake and the appearing of the judge. The great white throne is suitable to the majesty and holiness of the judge. He is not at first called by any name, for every eye shall see and seeing recognize his divine dignity. In the next verse he is styled God, not to identify him, but as a a matter of course in the narrative. No sooner did the judge take his seat than the earth and the heavens fled away. The simplicity and sublimity of this language is inimitable by human ingenious, and rarely if at all equaled, even by those who spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The first inspired writer uses language very similar, Genesis 1-3. We are frequently and sufficiently taught that the Lord Christ in person is to be the judge of quick and dead, Acts 18, verse 31. Excuse me, Acts 17, verse 31. All must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5-10. No person is competent to this work of judgment but one who is omniscient and omnipotent, not to speak of other divine perfections. The judge of all the earth is a divine person, possessed of all the attributes of deity, 
And as there is not now among apostate angels, so there will not then be a child of Adam to deny the supreme deity of Jesus Christ. Matthew 8, verse 29. Of this he gave intimation at the beginning of the apocalypse. Every eye shall see him, and they shall... And they also which pierced him, chapter 1, verse 7. Yes, they pierced him for blasphemy, because that he, being a man, made himself God. John 10, verse 33. Here the judge on the throne demonstrates to the assembled universe the scriptural warrant for the language of the reformers when they say he is very God and very man. God is judge himself. Psalm 50, verse 6. In the person of the Father... But he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Acts 17.31 Before the righteous judge shall be gathered all nations. Matthew 25, verse 32 All that have ever lived upon the earth from the creation till the end of time, all ranks and degrees, however diversified by sex, age or social position, righteous and wicked, Jews and Gentile, Herod and Pontius Pilate, Cain and Abel and Judas. In order to this general assize, A-S-S-I-Z-E, the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, John 5, verses 25 and 28 and 29. And many of them that slept in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, verse 2. The sea, death, and hell, or the grave, or rather the place of souls as separated by death from their bodies, which are thus awfully but beautifully personified, shall surrender their respective tenants, that they may stand before the Son of Man in judgment, only such as have died are mentioned here, but some will not die, but remain alive unto the coming of the Lord. The judge and these, it is probable, will be the camp of the saints which have been miraculously delivered from the rage of Gog and Magog, verses 8 and 9. There is a beautiful order in the final resurrection. The dead in Christ shall rise first, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. Next will be raised the wicked, for like sheep they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. Psalm 49, verse 14. The dead being all raised, those who shall all alive will undergo a change equivalent to death. In a moment, in a twinkling of the eye, for these shall not prevent or anticipate them which were asleep. That is, they will not be changed until their companions are called from the grave. All being now before the judgment seat of Christ, the books are open. Oh, what emotions will swell and heave the bosoms of the righteous, joy unspeakable and full of glory. For before the sentence of acquittal is publicly pronounced, their position on the judge's right hand indicates the sentence. And next, what terror insupportable will now seize the wicked, what fearful looking for, for of judgment and fiery indignation when in breathless suspense they await the just sentence. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew twenty-five forty-one, Hebrews ten twenty-seven. The righteousness of this sentence will be attested by the opened books of the divine omniscience, the human conscience, and in the case of gospel rejectors, the Bible. 
Second Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8. And the like condemnation would pass upon the righteous, but that another book is open, in which are inscribed the names of all the objects of God's electing love. And this will be the keynote in their songs of praise to all eternity. Jeremiah 31, 3, Revelation 1, 5. All are judged according to their works, as these are witnessed by the books, for their works do follow them. Chapter 14, verse 13. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Death or the grave, hell or the separate state will never again be needed as prisons to keep their inmates for trial. The lake of fire is the place of ceaseless and endless torment for all who are not found written in the book of life. And this place seems to be distinct from the bottomless pit, Satan's prison, out of which he had been loosed. Verse 7. Of the beast it is said he ascended out of the bottomless pit, but not that he was remanded thither again. He is said to go into perdition, which must be the lake of fire. Compare chapter 17, verse 8, with 19, verse 20, and 20, verse 20, excuse me, and 20, verses 1 to 3, with verse 10. The plain and obvious meaning of these closing verses of the 20th chapter as delineated in its general import by an appropriate and familiar symbols and intelligible word, forever excludes and emphatically condemns the conscience-stupefying heresies and blasphemies of Unitarians and Universalists, the God-man mediator seated upon the throne of his glory before whose face the earth and the heavens fled away is thus evidenced to be the Son of God, Jehovah's fellow, and we may here adopt the assertion and caution of the beloved disciple, this is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 1 John 5, 20 and 21. Moreover, these verses reveal a place or state more to be dreaded than the killing of the body, the lake of fire, which is the second death, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Matthew 10, verse 28. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8-10, to 10, and Hebrews 10, 26-31. With the twentieth chapter of the Apocalypse terminate the events of time in which the divine author demonstrates that known unto him are all his works from the beginning of the world. Acts 15, verse 18. Many indeed of the learned and pious have supposed the remaining chapters of the Apocalypse to be a description of the church on earth during the millennial period. But besides the series, coherence and dependence of the several parts of the book, precluding such retrogression, this interpretation overthrows the scriptural distinction between the militant and triumph church, excuse me, triumph state of the church. And it is not to be thought out of place that the inspired prophet should describe by suitable emblems the outline of the heavenly state. For this he had done briefly already in a number of instances. See chapters 2 and chapters 3, also chapter 7, verses 15 to 17. Those who consider the last two chapters as a delineation of the church on earth have first formed in their minds idea of a corporal or body, bodily presence of Christ and of a literal and visible reign on the earth. Such views we have already shown to be without scriptural warrant. Yea, against plain declarations of the Holy Spirit, as Acts 3.21, Matthew 17.11 and 12, and Hebrews 
Hence, we shall contemplate the symbols of the following chapters except as incidents or illusions may render this incompatible as shadowing forth the glories of the church's heavenly state. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I saw John the I, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. It is unquestionable that the phrase new heavens and a new earth is to be understood sometimes as descriptive of moral renovation in the world. As the moral change affected by grace in the character of an individual sinner is called a new creation, and it and is in truth no less, so in respect to a community. The analogy in this case is the same as between a revolution and an earthquake. Thus, we must understand Isaiah 65, verse 17, and 66, verse 22, of that great moral change which will characterize the millennium. But the new heaven and the new earth are here contrasted with the first heaven and the first earth which were passed away. Chapter 20, verse 11. The Apostle Peter describes the very same grand and glorious change, mingling the important facts of authentic history with the future facts of prophecy. He tells us that the heavens and the earth, which are now, are reserved unto fire. He speaks obviously of the visible heavens and earth. These heavens shall pass away, and the earth also shall be burnt up. He adds, We look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. 2 Peter 3, verses 7 and 13. There was no more sea, no more disorderly passions, animosities arising from human depravity to interrupt the delightful harmony and fellowship of saints in glory. This ends side one. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side two. It is estimated that about two-thirds of this world are occupied by water. In that happy place occupied by the people of God, there is no sea, Consequently, yet there is room, many mansions, room enough for all the redeemed. The holy city, compared to a bride, two very incongruous emblems show the poverty of symbols, their inadequacy to represent the church triumphant. How then shall created objects furnish suitable emblems of the glorious and glorified bridegroom? In vision, the city seemed to the apostle as if suspended in the air on the same plane with himself. For now he stood neither on the sand of the sea, chapter 13, verse 1. For there was no more sea, nor upon the earth, for it was passed away. 
No intervening object could obstruct his view. He heard a voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, as is reconciled and beloved as his reconciled and beloved people. As a tender father, he will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, either of themselves or their beloved friends, to open the fountain of tears any more forever. But death is the last enemy to be destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15.26 How then can these words apply to any state short of immortality in heaven? Neither sorrow nor crying for sin or suffering, neither shall there be any more pain, causing tears or cries. And what is this but heaven? Yes, the former things are passed away. Now he that hath the bride is the bridegroom, and she shall never be false to her marriage covenant any more. He that sat on the throne denotes the Father most frequently in this book, as he is distinguished from the Son. But the Son is set down with the Father in his throne, chapter 3, verse 21. And the Son is to be viewed as the person on the throne here, as the following words compared with the 20th chapter, verse 11, make evident. He it is who makes all things new. He left his disciples as to his bodily presence and went up to prepare a place for them, John 14, verse 2. And now he has come again and received them to himself in fulfillment of his promise, having sent the Holy Spirit to create them anew and to carry on to completion their sanctification. He now sees of the travail of his soul. The Father had given him his heart's desire and hath not withholden the request of his lips. Now all his ransomed ones are with him in answer to his prayer and also their own prayers that they may behold his glory with which the Father gave him. Psalm 21, 2, John 17, verse 24, Philippians 1, 23. The Lord Christ said to John, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And what has sustained the spirits, animated the hopes, and filled with exulting joy the confessors, witnesses, and martyrs of Jesus, but faith realizing views of the King and his beauty, and the glories of Emmanuel's land. For this peculiarity, the disciples of Christ have been as speckled birds, men wondered at in all generations. It is done. So he said at the pouring out of the seventh vial, chapter 16, verse 17, when the final stroke was given to the anti-Christian enemies. But now these words import the completion of the whole counsel of the will of God as carried into effect by the captain of salvation, in bringing the beloved and adopted sons and daughters of the Father home to glory. Hebrews 2.10 He who is the Alpha and Omega is the author and finisher of their faith. Although the Lord Jesus had made of sinners new creatures, prepared them as vessels of mercy unto glory, and introduced them into heaven, they are creatures still and necessarily dependent. They thirst for refreshment suited to their holy nature, and accordingly he gives of the fountain of the water of life freely, for the streams of which they thirsted, as the heart panteth for the water brooks, while they sojourn in a dry and parched land far from their father's house. Man's sin consisted in forsaking this fountain of living waters, and his recovery and felicity must arise from his returning from his own broken cisterns 
to the original spring. The water of life was per- that was purchased at infinite cost by Christ, but he offers it to the thirsty without price. Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Those who are refreshed by the streams of the water of life have many enemies to encounter in their militant state, but all who overcome are encouraged in their warfare by the animating promise that they shall inherit all things. 1 Corinthians 3.21 He shall be my son, and if a son, then an heir of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Verse 8 But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But the fearful, who dread suffering or reproach for the cause of Christ, not the self-diffident who love his captain, but the coward or deserter who turns his back in the day of battle, who fears the enemy more than his captain, and unbelieving, not the misbelieving, as Thomas, nor the weak in faith, but such as have no faith, infidels, the abominable, defiling the flesh as sodomites, murderers, suicide, duelists, assassins, burglars, whoremongers, adulterers, fornicators, sorcerers, necromancers, spiritualists, who are the devil's prophets, pretending to new revelations, are and all liars, perjured persons, deceivers, hypocrites, false teachers who handle the word of the Lord deceitfully for filthy lucre's sake, all such shall have their part in the lake with the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, Ephesians 5, 5 and 6, and 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. Verses 9 to 14. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gate twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel." And on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. This angel is probably the same who had shown John the mystic Babylon and her destruction, chapter 17, verse 1, and who now proposes to show him the bride of the Lamb by way of contrast. Under the influence of the Spirit, who had access to the soul without the use of the bodily organs, 2 Corinthians 12.2, John was carried to a great and high mountain, where the prospect might be sufficiently enlarged. When the angel proposed to show him the scarlet whore, he carried him into the wilderness, intimating that such is the only position in which the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her can be clearly seen or perfectly understood. 1 Peter 1, verse 9. Great indeed is the contrast. Both objects are complex, and the combination of symbols wholly incongruous in nature admonishes the sober interpreter to beware of indulging his vain fancy 
by attempting to trace analogies in detail where none are intended by the Holy Spirit. The true church of Christ is compared to a virtuous and fruitful woman. Chapter 12, verse 5. And the apostate church is symbolized by a fruitful but profligate woman. Chapter 17, verse 5. Then both are also represented by two cities, which are equally contrasted. As the women differ in their outward adornment, chapters 19, verse 8, and chapter 17, verse 4, so do the cities in the quality of population, commerce, and and employment, chapter 18, verse 4, and chapter 22, verse 14. The nuptials being consummated between the lamb and his bride, and she being now made perfect in holiness under the emblem of a city, she is illuminated with the glory of God, made comely through his comeliness put under her, rendered beautiful and illustrious beyond conception or expression, for the happiness of heaven results from conformity to the God-man, communion with him and communications from him. 1 John 3, 2 her light resembled the jasper, clear as crystal. The knowledge of saints in heaven will be intuitive. They will no longer see through a glass darkly by word and sacraments, nor shall the glory, nor shall the glorious bridegroom show himself as formerly through the lattice. Song of Solomon, two, verse nine. But they shall see him as he is. First John three two. A wall, great and high, denotes the security of this city, which can never be scaled by an enemy. The twelve gates are to admit the twelve tribes of God's spiritual Israel, the sealed ones, chapter 7, verses 5 to 8, who shall come forth from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. Luke 13:29. At the gates were twelve angels as guards and porters, the foundations of the wall, named after the twelve apostles, denote all who enter the city gained admission by belief of the truth as taught by the apostles, had continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the face of reproach, persecution, and apostasy. They were built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Old and New Testament believers saved by the blood of the Lamb. For the twelve tribes multiplied by the twelve apostles make a hundred and forty-four. And these again, multiplied by a thousand, make the whole number who appeared with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Chapter 14, verse 1. The public witnesses of Christ in the church militant during the great apostasy. Verses 15 to 17. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof a hundred and forty-four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. The apostle borrows the symbols and language of preceding prophets, especially those of Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 3, and Zechariah, chapter 2, verse 1. The furlongs measured by the reed indicate a city of vast dimensions, and being four square, each side would be about 1,500 miles. And as the length and breadth and height of it are equal, we are hereby taught that no gross conceptions are to be formed in our imaginations, since a city 1,500 miles high is utterly inconceivable. 
the instruction intended to be conveyed to us by the vast dimensions and precious materials of this city may be the incomprehensible nature and transcendent glory of heaven. 1 Corinthians 2.9 A cubit, as the word signifies, is the measure of a man from his elbow to the end of his middle finger. The measure of the wall in height or breadth was 144 cubits, or the twelve tribes, as before, multiplied by the twelve apostles. For the idea of a cube as the most perfect symbol of symmetrical form seems to be intended. Verses 18 to 21. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth chrysophorus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. The jasper, gold, and glass are here all combined, though their natural properties and chemical elements are so different. Glass is clear, transparent, but brittle. Gold is solid and shining, but opaque. In heaven the saints shall no more than we can now imagine. The glass will be all gold. As the eye sees an object through glass at a glance, so the saints in heaven will perceive truth without the tedious process of comparison and reasoning. The gold will be as glass. All these symbols are intended to show to the devout reader that the anti-Christian harlot is incomparably eclipsed by the glory of the Lamb's bride, having no glory by reason of the glory that excelleth. The twelve precious stones which garnish the foundations of the wall of the city are an allusion to those of Aaron's breastplate of judgment, Exodus 28, verses 17 to 20, indicating that the Urim and Thummim, the light and perfection of glory, shall be there, superseding the oracle and Shekinah, for one thing is peculiar to this city by which it is distinguished from the old Jerusalem, no temple, verses 22 to 27, and I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for thou sh there shall be no night there and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall be no wise, there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. There was no temple therein, as there was a temple in the city which Ezekiel saw in vision, chapter 41 verse 1 and this fact determines the point that his prophecy relates to the church militant so the absence of even the semblance of such a structure here proves that this is a description of the church triumphant in heaven there is no need of external material visible symbols of God's presence as the ceremonial law had 
a shadow of good things to come, but vanished away when Christ appeared, Hebrews 10.1, so will it be in heaven. No ordinances will be used to act upon either sense or faith, these having issued in vision. The glorious presence of the Lord, Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, having superseded the necessity of a temple, the light of the sun and moon shall be no longer needed. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1.5 And as long as Christ was in the world, he was the light of the world. John 9 verse 5 We have seen that other suns and moons which were symbolic have been darkened or blotted out of existence by the omnipotent mediator. But now these natural luminaries are totally and forever obscured by the ineffable effulgence of uncreated light. The manifested and immediate presence of the Father and the Son, all the redeemed shall walk in the light of the Lord, and all the glory of the kings of the earth, concentrated in one place, would bear no comparison with the splendor of this holy city. The gates are not to be shut during the day of eternity, and since the excellent ones of the earth shall all enter the twelve open gates from every part of the world, it may be truly said that they bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. What a delightful scene of a holy, happy, safe, and harmonious fellowship. It is observable that the apostle altogether drops personalities here. He seizes only upon properties or qualities, anything. So holy is the place, and so holy the inhabitants, yea, so safe and secure, that no creature... No beast of the field which the Lord God has made shall ever gain an entrance into this heavenly paradise, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, who, despite the serpent, brings all his spiritual seed safe to glory. Chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. And they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign for ever and ever. These verses, being a continuance of the description of the holy city, naturally belong to the preceding chapter. The angel proceeds to show John the source and current from which emanate all heavenly blessings. The allusion is to Ezekiel 42, verses 1 to 12. But both he and John call our attention to man's primeval state when our first parents dwelt in Eden. This abode of the blessed is beautified and enriched with all the products, delights, and attractions which were adapted to the refined senses of the holy creatures, pleasant to the eyes and good for food. It is paradise restored by the doing and dying of the second Adam, it is also paradise improved, having not only the tree of life, as the first had, but also, in addition, the water of life. The tree of life was to sinless Adam a symbol and pledge of immortality to himself and all his posterity whom he represented in the covenant of works. 
Now that heaven is procured for all believers by the second Adam, it is emblematically represented to our weak apprehension by directing our attention to the primitive and earthly paradise. This is repeatedly done in Scripture. The Lord Jesus, before he expired on the cross, said to the penitent thief, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, Luke 23:43. Paul was caught up thither, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4, and he calls the place heaven, verse 2. And in this book, chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord promises, I will give to him that overcometh to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The tree is a sim- emblem of Christ, Song of Songs, ver- chapter 2, verse 3. The river of water of life symbolizes the Holy Spirit, chapter, uh, John 7, chapter 38 and 39. For as the Son and the Holy Ghost proceed from the Father, the former by generation, the latter by emanation from eternity, so that eternal life which was with the Father in the person of the Son and purchased by the Son is communicated by the Holy Ghost to all the redeemed by regeneration. 2 Corinthians 3.6, Romans 8, verse 2. Thus, the eternal duration of life and glory proceeds out of the throne of God and the Lamb. On each side of the river, the tree of life is accessible by the inhabitants, and the fruits of the tree ripen all months of the year and adapted to every taste. Each one may put forth his hand as he passes and take and eat and live forever. Genesis 3.22 Or, the people that are therein may sit down under its shadow and its fruits will be sweet to their taste. The leaves of the tree are for medicine, being preventative of all disease, so that inhabitant, excuse me, so that the inhabitant shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein are forgiven their iniquities. Isaiah thirty three twenty four. There shall be no more curse. Satan gained entrance into the Garden of Eden and succeeded in entailing the curse upon man and upon beast and upon the fruits of the ground, but he shall never be loosed again or emerge from the lake of fire to disturb the repose of that blessed society in heaven. Chapter 21, verse 27. As the throne of God and of the Lamb is one, chapter 3, verse 21, so it is remarkable that the distinction of persons is omitted, as though the Father and the Son were but one person. True, Christ said, I and my Father are one, John 10.30, but he referred to unity of nature and purpose, not of personality. For in consistency with this, he also said, My Father is greater than I, an assertion which must consist with the former, and which plainly involves personal distinction, Chapter 14:28. His name shall be in their foreheads. Which of them? We have found Christ's Father's name written in the foreheads of a hundred and forty-four thousand saints militant. Chapter 14, verse 1. While in conflict, the world knew not them, and the inheritance of Antichrist cast out their names as evil, branding them as heretics. But now they are known to the whole universe as the covenant property of both the Father and the Son. Chapter 3, verse 12. Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Hebrews 2:13. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. 
All mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. John 17:6 and 10. There will be no intermission or interruption of service, no nights there, no hiding of God's countenance, no desertions, for they shall see his face in the express image of the Father's person, be assured of his love, need no candle nor any earthly accommodation, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever in fullness of joy and unalloyed pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, verse 11. This ends tape number 11 of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Notes on the Apocalypse by David Still, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.